0: Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu.
1: All right, welcome everybody. This is uh, IWP standard time. We're only running five minutes late, which means we're on time. Um, And those of you familiar with Latin American culture, that means we're actually quite a bit early. Uh, my name is Paul Poyer. I'm a research professor here at the Institute of World Politics. Um, Latin America is something that the United States has historically, for the last several decades at least, not spent enough attention on, in my opinion, strategically and for other reasons. Uh, it has been considered sexy to look at the Middle East, to look at Russia, to look at China, and those are all really important issues. But what happens in the Western Hemisphere is of vital importance to the United States strategically, and I would argue morally as well. And uh, my own wife is from Venezuela, which is one of the reasons why I've started to look more carefully at it for the last few years. One of our friends is Joseph Ramirez He is a friend and also a scholar. Uh, Joseph, I wouldn't say he's an ex-Marine because you never say that about a Marine. Um, <laughs> He is uh, the head of the Center for Secure Free Society. He does consulting, we've got a a very, very long bio here, I'll keep it short. Joseph does a lot of things, you can call him an international man of mystery, but one that thinks uh, as well about a lot of different topics. He does consulting uh, with the uh, intelligence community and the military and uh, and, uh, the US government, state department, et cetera, for very good reasons. He watches these events in Latin America and the international dynamics quite closely. and what's going on in Venezuela right now is taking place in the context of uh, a lot of dramatic changes all through the region. You have dramatic changes in uh, Bolivia, which um, uh, Joseph's ancestry is Bolivian. You've got major changes taking place right now in Argentina with, uh, with the new election that brought the Peronists back to power. You've got uh, huge street protests in Chile. <coughs> You've got challenges in Colombia, you've got AMLO in Mexico, bringing Mexico in a new direction, bringing an entire relationship with Cuba, uh, et cetera, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a lot of things going on right now. So Venezuela is only one of those many uh, countries in flux, but it's the one in which all of America's um, opponents and, and, frankly, enemies, uh, are all present and in a very, uh, in a very malignant fashion, using their base in Venezuela to target the United States strategic interests. And uh, some of the most important of those are who we're here to talk about today: Iran and Hezbollah. So, join me in welcoming Joseph Emery.
0: <clears throat> well, um, good evening. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, first of all, thank you, everybody. I have to apologize for a second with my voice. Uh, I thought it was a good idea to travel to New York without a coat uh, over the weekend. <laughs> and so uh, I picked up a little bit of a head cold, so I will just make sure my voice uh, carries through. Um, it was actually about five years ago today since I was at uh, here at IBDP. so I'm, I'm delighted to be back. I uh, very much respect John Linchowski, the work of the university. I think you guys are a very unique university that does a lot of things related to national security. Uh, including Latin America. And actually, one of my old friends and colleagues and mentors that was a uh, former professor here was Professor Norm Bailey, who is now in Israel. Uh, so I have a, a lot of respect for the work of the university, and it's an honor and privilege to be with at the university again. Um, in 2014, when I was here uh, for the first time, I uh, actually was presenting about Iran and Latin America. Uh, it was at the, at the period where I, uh, we, I published a book, I co edited a book uh, called the Iran Strategic Penetration in Latin America. Uh, one of those chapters in that book was Venezuela, but obviously we were looking at the region as a whole, and because of that, um, you know, it, it was at a time when it was very nascent, that issue, and not a lot of people were talking about it, but we were able to get some traction. Now, you kind of fast forward five years, uh, I'm back, and now I'm gonna talk about Venezuela, a topic that uh, I've also been looking at for quite a long time, and I think many people in the audience have been examining uh, even longer than I have. Um, but now, I think, in talking about Iran or Hezbollah, in Venezuela it is not so much of a, kind of like a, you know, come out of the crazy corner of Washington, D.C. It's, 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 it's actually a very real thing. Uh, matter of fact, uh, prior to coming in here today, I was scrolling through my social media, and a very prominent uh, Venezuelan journalist, someone that does a lot of coverage, actually, she probably covers about half of my Instagram whenever I uh, review it, uh, Carla Angola, who you may, some of you may know from EBTV, uh, posted an interview she gave with the Under Secretary for Terror Finance, a gentleman named Marshall Billingsley, and Marshall Billingley said in a, in a cute question and answer with Carla Angola, uh, when she asked him about Hezbollah uh, in Venezuela, he confirmed something that we suspected, which he confirmed that in April of this year, in a trip that the Foreign Minister of Venezuela, Jorge Ariasa, went to Beirut, that he met with the Secretary General of Hezbollah, uh, uh, Nasrallah, Hassan Nasrallah. So that meeting took place. Uh, that was confirmed today by the Under Secretary of Terror Finance. Uh, he also mentioned that they're going to be working very closely to uh, document and to uh, reveal more about the relationship with Hezbollah uh, and Venezuela. and So I think this is a very timely uh, opportunity to talk a little bit about this. When me and Paul first started to talk about, you know, the idea of coming and talking about this topic, because I think what you hear in the media most, you hear mostly about Cuba. I think there's a lot of been documented, uh, a lot of been reporting on the Cuban presence in Venezuela. You're lately hearing a lot more about Russia. Uh, you even hear China. Obviously, the economic presence is very large. But you don't. You, he, you might hear about Iran, or you might hear about Hezbollah. But you don't really see anything. Uh, it's very, very rarely does anyone produce any kind of evidence or any, any kind of analysis that's concrete on the Iranian Hezbollah presence. So the point that I think a lot of Venezuelans think is a bit of a myth. They think you know, you know, we've heard this rumor of Iran and Hezbollah in Venezuela, but you know, we're waiting for someone to show us. So I think what I told uh, Paul as I said before we just come in here and give you a bunch of slides and talk about case. A, case B, case C, and give you a bunch of uh, you know Arabic names, uh, Lebanese or, or Syrian names that no one's going to understand, and, and you know it'd just kind of be like a show and tell. I thought uh, you know for strategic reasons, let me take a little bit of a step back and, and, and talk a little about the origins. And, and this is actually a variation of a brief that I've given more than a dozen times. I think this is the only second time I've done it publicly. Uh, only the first time with the camera uh, in front. So I guess this would be now public. But uh, this is actually a variation of of a longer briefing I've been giving to the Ministry of Defense in Brazil, uh, the Ministry of Defense in Colombia, and as Paul mentioned, obviously, the Department of Defense here in the United States, to truly get to the heart of what is going on in Venezuela. What is at the origin of this uh, uh, crisis, which I consider more as a conflict uh, today. Let me see if I know how to work this. So I think this is the obvious, right? Um, I think what grabs everybody's attention when it comes to Venezuela, uh, beyond uh, the humanitarian conditions, beyond the political crisis, beyond everything, the threats, the the presence, that what really makes this uh, kind of an anomaly in many sense is the economic situation. And that's, I think, fundamentally going to drive uh, this uh, conflict uh, uh, to a point where the United States is going to, uh, and it already is, but will even increasingly have to deal with uh, in in, in different different terms. um, The decline of the economic deceleration of Venezuela it's it's uh, faster than almost anything we've seen in modern history. It's much faster than the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Soviet decline of the Soviet Union. You know, Zimbabwe, Greece are recent uh, the economic uh, uh, basket cases that you know, didn't work. But for fifty percent of your GDP to essentially evaporate in four less than a little bit more than four years is it's it's, it's uh, you know kind of a, a it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and so when I began to start to look at this, you know, it it, it, all, it was almost as if I wanted to understand how does something like a Venezuela take place? How did how do we get to a situation where uh, you know, the economy is spiraling down? You know where there's uh, inflation at a million percent or more—that the things that we haven't seen in modern history—the um, the, the explanations that you would constantly hear among the politicians in the press is the first one is the obvious one. They would say, "Well, this is you know, obviously this has to do with socialism." Now, socialism is the culprit. Socialism is what caused Venezuela's economic collapse. Well, it's undoubtedly true that if you engage in socialist policies, uh, mainly state control of the economy, you will get uh, uh, these kind of outcomes. But we've seen socialist policies in Latin America. In past. As no a matter of fact, you've seen socialist policies in Venezuela in the past, but we haven't seen this. The next uh, explanation that you often get, well, this, is, uh, this has to do with uh, narco-trafficking. This is a criminal government. It's pretty much a government that's engaged in all kinds of illicit activity, and it's a narco-state, so, or a criminal state. So that's, that's why they're doing this, because they, they want to destroy the economy because everything that they do is outside of the formal economy, it's in the informal economy and this gives, it gives them more power. Uh, well, we've seen narco-states in Latin America. You know, we all remember uh, Manuel Noriega in Panama. And my, my matter of fact, I believe there are narco-states in Latin America at this present, but most narco-states that I remember are very quiet. Uh, they don't seem to make a lot of noise because uh, obviously the activities that they're engaged with, the illicit activities they're engaged with uh, are not conducive to these type of political uh, crises. Um, then the, the, the more, I think the bigger explanation that you get now is what's the Cubans? Cubans are absolutely involved. That's what the Cubans are doing this, and and I want to be careful how I say this. It is at this point in you know November two thousand nineteen, undoubtedly true, and irrefutably um, the the point that there is a Cuban occupation inside Venezuela. There's a Cuban control of many institutions within the Venezuelan uh, government. Uh, there is a uh, if you can call strategic alliance with uh, Havana that has ongoing. That's you know gone past Hugo Chavez, who died in 2013, and and succeeded onto Nicolas Maduro. Yet we've seen Cuban occupation in Latin America, we all remember Granada in the 1980s. These ingredients, to me, were insufficient to describe what was going on in Venezuela. And I think for many folks that are knowledgeable about Venezuela, I think also can agree that there's more to this, there's something more to this. So this kind of pushed me to go into a different angle and to look, and I wanted to get into a bit of the origins. Well, oh, skip myself. Well, anyhow, you guys already got the punchline, so I'll, I'll skip the punchline. <laughs> and, and essentially, what, what what I would do often when I did that part of the presentation was I would talk about you know in my trips to Latin America, my visits with uh, uh, these military foreign or foreign counterparts in, in, in defense in, in different countries. And, in order to engage their thinking and in order to build this synergy with what's going on in the world, constantly like would tell the story. And i tell the story about the origin of the Bolivarian Revolution. But when I would tell the story, I would tell it kind of in a very personal way, and a story I think that many in Latin America uh, can understand. It's the story of a lieutenant colonel, a lieutenant colonel who wanted to um, take power by force, but failed, Uh, then got elected as president, and immediately uh, used his position as president to uh, take over the natural resources and, and take the profits to start his revolution, first domestically, then exported it abroad and all the while accusing his opponents of uh, aggressors and imperialists and capitalists. Um, and this president was in power, Lieutenant Colonel president was in power for 14 years, uh, not before uh, passing away uh, for natural causes, um, but leaving a legacy of crime, uh, corruption, and conflict. So I tell that story anywhere in Latin America, and it's undoubtedly the same. You're talking about Lieutenant Colonel Hugo Chavez. But that story is identical to the story of Lt. Col. Gamil Abdel Nasser. And the reason I tell that story that way, and the reason I I make the similarities with Nasser, is because Nasser and Chavez are tied by history and migration. These are important connections to understand how the Bolivarian Revolution was formed, the way it was shaped, and the inspiration it took in terms of its strategic orientation. So I'm going to go, and I realize I don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm going to go very kind of quickly through Uh, a lot of this, but what I'd like to do, and hopefully this works, we didn't test it out before, but I want to play a short video because other than hearing it from Joseph Humeyer, it's kind of a little bit impactful also to hear it from the people who worked the revolution themselves. So hopefully this works, if it doesn't, I'll just skip through it. And it did work. Give me one second. Yeah, okay, let's Let's skip through it. Essentially what that was, was that was a video of uh, Hugo Chavez uh, in an interview in, in Syria, during one of his first trips to Syria in 2006, where he uh, w- was asked about the legacy of Nazar, uh, about the legacy of Arab nationalism, and he gave a very you know, long-winded answer that we truncated to about 45 seconds, to where he said, you know, he identified his understanding of Arab nationalism, his appreciation for Nazar, he extended it to Assad in Syria, understanding that the Ba'athist movement was born out of this, uh, and then uh, at the end of the video says, you know, uh, I I feel like I have Arab blood, uh, in a way that you know this. I, I'm not doing it justice the way I'm saying it. In the way that only Hugo Chavez could say it. Uh, and some of you, I think, that have seen this uh, variation presentation would see that video. I can send that video to, to to Paul. It's part of a historical archive that my research team has dug up from uh, Jordan, actually, um, that we are looking to make public in the near future. Uh, nonetheless, uh, what did he mean when he said I have Arab blood? I think. Uh, nominally, he didn't take a 23 andme and figure something out that none of us know, I think uh, really what he means is he understands the history of the Arab struggle, and um, that goes beyond what is Iran and Hezbollah today, because Iran was born in 1979 and Hezbollah in 1982. What he means is he understood the strategic orientation of the Middle East as it evolved uh, uh, in the 20th century, because before the Iranian Revolution, what dominated politics and conflict in the Middle East was the rise and the fall of Arab nationalism, which was what... Uh, Gamela Abdel Nazar sparked. So there's three things within the Arab nationalist movement in the Middle East that are important to realize and how it reflects within the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela. The first is strategy. The second is concepts, and the third is symbols. Uh, in terms of concepts, you know, it, for those that look at Venezuela, very, everyone knows that Chavez used the concept of Gran Colombia, the pan is unification of the Latin America. I think five, four or five countries within Latin America to unify them under one social cultural identity. Well, that's not an original. Concept. The concept of Greater Syria is very much the same thing. It's the pan-Arab unification of Egypt and Syria, which actually, if you remember, Nazar was successful. Nazar did unite Egypt and Syria and created what's called the United Arab Republic for a period of about 10 years uh, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, evidently, it didn't last, but he, he understood the, the, in, in the historical tense of natural Syria versus greater Syria. And, and, and if you look at you know, natural Syria, which goes back to the 7th century, and what the Ottomans used in Greater Syria to take the Arab Rising, it was fundamentally important to the history of the Middle East, which goes into symbols. Um, obviously, the one in Venezuela that's most known is Simón Bolívar, uh, and obviously uh, Hugo Chávez. In that video, there's a, it's actually an hour-long interview that I, I, I will send the poll that everyone can get a, a chance to take a look. Um, Chávez does an interesting comparison, where he mentions Simón Bolívar as a liberator of the Venezuelan people. We all have heard him talk about this before. But then he makes an, an analogous comparison to uh, Sultan Pasha Al-Atrash, an individual that probably most folks uh, do not know, especially Latin America uh, observers. Was Sultan Alatrosch uh, considered to be the liberator of Syria? Because during the Arab Revolt in 1910, uh, Alatrosch worked with the British to be able to ensure that the Ottomans did not take over Syria. Uh, Alatrash is a Druze. Uh, he's from Southwest Syria, and uh, he has you know he's a hero in in, in the history of Syria. Uh, Assad is named. Uh, um, prizes and, and other things after after Alatrash. And Alatrash was a defender of the Greater Syria concept, understanding what's the natural Syria to Greater Syria. So uh, Alatrash, uh, what was interesting, not just the comparison, but what was interesting to, to me was the use of the symbol. Because the symbol of Alatrash, beyond being the liberator of Syria, is also a very important symbol in a specific ethno religious minority, which is the Druze. The Druze is not well known in, in many regards, they're a very secretive. Um, Culture, uh, um, sort of like a, a country, with, a culture without a country. Uh, they exist along the tribe border of uh, southern Lebanon, southwestern Syria, and northern Israel. Uh, but they have one of the hardest uh, uh, things to do in the world in terms of survivability. They have to work with three opposing factions. They, they have to work with the Israeli government, obviously, they're very close to the IDF, on the, on the Jews in Israel. They have to work with the Assad government, those that are in Syria. And then they have to work with the Lebanese government, and in some cases, because in the southern part of Lebanon. Uh, some of the Jews work with Hezbollah. So in that sense, they're naturally in conflict. And what was interesting when you start to study the history of Sultan al atrash is not so much what Sultan al did, but what he didn't do. Uh, One of the things about the history of the Druze, and this is something that, you know, our fellow colleagues from the Middle East would love to engage you on, is uh, the Druze understood that since they, their most important thing to them is the survivability of their people. So when the Ottomans were looking to basically take over the Middle East, they understood that the best strategy for them to survive this conquest was to, A, uh, you know, fight it, but B, uh, infiltrate it. So, uh, the, the Druze actually worked ag- against the Ottomans in Sultan al trashs case, but then the Jews from northern Lebanon worked with the Ottomans. And that is something that's not very well known into the history of, of the Arab Revolt, but it has been documented, I spent two weeks with the Druze in northern Israel, and it's something they don't talk about. Uh, very much, but it, it brings into a concept something that I think is very relevant to the Bolivarian Revolution, which is the concept of insurgency. You know, when you, uh, when you talk about insurgency, there's a tactic that's fundamental: insurgencies, which is compartmentalization. Compartmentalization is nothing more and nothing less than when you take different cells within a network and you compartmentalize them to work to different, towards different, towards to a common objective through different means. It, very simply, if we were one network here, and me and Paul fabricate a fight, we pretend like we're enemies now, and then I defect, and I go work with our enemy of IDP, I don't know who the enemy of IDP is, but I go work with another university, and then I work my way up to become close to the leadership of that university, and then we start competing, but me and you still have an ability to work together. That's compartmentalization, and that is something that is, uh, 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 the insurgency method and the compartmentalization tactic is something that is uh, streamlined within the rise of Arab nationalism, and it's something I think is very important to understand when we get into uh, the model of, of Venezuela and the Bolivarian Revolution. This is a longer history that I don't have the time today to go through, but what I want to do is I want to tap it into migration, because that's a little bit more concrete. Um, this kind of movement that existed in the Middle East in the 20th century Found itself into Venezuela more recently through an individual that uh, some of you may know is Amin Alay Sami, or what's known as Carlos Zaidan in Venezuela. Uh, you may recognize his surname because he is the father of Tarek Alay Sami, who is the former vice president, current minister of industries, national production. Uh, they call him a MUFI because uh, Carlos Zaidan arrived in Venezuela not as a just a regular migrant or a refugee. He arrived in Venezuela because he was part of a, of a political uh, mission uh, when. Carlos Zaidan arrived in Venezuela, was at the period of time when the Ba'ath party split in the Middle East. When the Ba'athists uh, that were originated out of Syria, born out of Syria, uh, compartmentalized and fractured to move on to Iraq. There you see uh, Michelle Aflak, one of the fa- fa- co-founders of the Ba'ath party in, in Syria, uh, Shivli Alaysami, uh, also a co-founder of the Ba'ath party in Syria, al uh, Alaysami then goes to Iraq, and becomes the Secretary General of the, of the Iraqi branch of, uh, of the Ba'ath Party. You can see Saddam Hussein uh, right behind him. And at the time that uh, Shibli al-Aissami moves over to Iraq, they send his nephew, Zaidan uh, uh, Amin, Z- Amin al-Aissami, to Venezuela to create the Ba'ath Party Venezuela. But in actuality, in, in some of the text, what it was described there was the Ba'ath Party Colombo Venezuela, which is why they sent him to the border. That's right there. Okay, so there's three periods of mass migration from the Middle East to uh, Latin America. The first is uh, around uh, the year 1880. This is when the Ottomans began to make their major push uh, against the the, the, conquest of the Middle East and there was uh, a tremendous amount of persecution. That persecution obviously led to a mass outflow of refugees. A lot of those refugees landed in South America. Particularly they landed in Argentina, Colombia, and Venezuela. In fact, uh, one of the Common terms for those that are from the region from Latin America. Uh, I think you guys know them as Turcos, right? And you call them Turcos because they actually aren't Turcos, uh, but a lot of them had Turco uh, documents because it was Turkey, that, uh, Ottomans, that was handling the documentation of the refugee outflows. So a lot of them were actually Armenian, uh, were Maronite Christian uh, uh, from the Middle East that were being persecuted by uh, uh, the Ottomans, but they would lose their documentation. They would come as refugees to. In fact, the tri-border area in the south of South America and the intersection of uh, Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay is uh, originated from this migration. The next period is from 1910, which is the Armenian Genocide, and uh, I think someone I met from Armenia recently now. The Armenian Genocide, which was uh, obviously the word genocide comes in the UN uh, uh, vernacular from the Armenian Genocide, Uh, comes from that period, another wave of mass uh, 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 refugee outflows kind of hits uh, Latin America, this time more to Colombia and, and, and Venezuela. And Mexico. Um, and then the last and more recent wave of mass refugee outflows from um, the Middle East uh, that happened between the period of 1960 to 1970, which that was when uh, basically the, the Ba'ath party was uh, solidified itself into Syria and then later, uh, well, much later into Iraq, obviously the, the beginnings of what became later the uh, Lebanese Civil War and, and many people escaped. During this mass migration, during this outflow that happened to Latin America, uh, that came to Latin America, uh, and this is something that's very synonymous, that's just in this case, but it's synonymous in all, almost all refugee cases, when you look at mass refugee outflows, is uh, what's called ratlines. Ratlines right? are evacuation routes, uh, most popularly you known what the Nazis. Actually, the matter of fact, this ratline is what the Nazis took after World War II to come into uh, South America. But a ratline was established where uh, ratlines are used in, from intelligence concepts, not just for uh, the movement of personnel or terrorists, it's for the movement of networks. Is, is a clandestine network design. And within that, uh, there was this particular uh, uh, arrival in Venezuela of certain individuals that we really don't know who they are. Uh, one of those individuals is uh, a gentleman named Nehemet Chagin Simon. Uh, for those uh, uh, familiar with we Venezuelan history, you might know him as Simon El Arabe. Um, he is most famously known as the individual that liberated the uh, heads of the Communist Party of Venezuela from the San Carlos prison, uh, I believe it was in 1967, when he broke him out of the prison. He apparently arrived in Venezuela in 1962 as a Syrian refugee. Uh, he was fleeing the oppression uh, of, the, of, the, of the Arab nationalists, of the, of the Ba'athists in, in Syria. And he arrives in Venezuela. But it's very curious because he while well, he's fleeing the, the Ba'athists, which are also socialists, he's fleeing the Ba'athists in Syria. And he arrives in Venezuela to work with the socialists in Venezuela. Now, that doesn't make a, a, lot of, a whole lot of coherence. Nonetheless, uh, he... Uh, liberation that. He literally dug the tunnel from the San Carlos prison. He bought the store across the street. Uh, he, he, he talked to the security. He infiltrated the, 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 the prison guards and dug the tunnel and broke out uh, Tito and the others that were in in that prison. But the one I think one of the most important things to examine is this is an inflection point. And matter of fact, you know, if, if you ask me, I think this is an inflection point to what later then became the Bolivarian Revolution, because up until that point, for those that are some very very knowledgeable Venezuelans here. Up until that point, the Venezuelan communists, the Venezuelan guerrilla movements, the Fuerza de, de Liberación Nacional, was intent to fight against the Venezuelan armed forces through guerrilla warfare. A very Cuban like strategy to very draw in the military into the jungles, ambush them, and then fight them, much the way the Cubans tried or did successfully in, 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 in Cuba, in the island. Nonetheless, it didn't work in Venezuela, Venezuela was much different, it's a bigger jungle, it's a different geographic landscape, the terrain is very different, and obviously our military is much different, so it was unsuccessful in Venezuela, but what you see here in this inflection point is you see uh, uh, a, a change from guerrilla warfare to insurgency, very different, and uh, for those, you know, you students of of, of national security of, of um, irregular warfare, and you, what you see as you see, it kind of a, a, di- a distinction between the Cuban method and the Cuban strategy and a more adaptation towards the Arab method and the mm-hmm. Arab strategy. There's actually stories a lot about how Che Guevara went and traveled to meet with Nazar and asked him, said, listen, I want to go to Angola. And he said, oh yeah, you want to be a white man and go to Angola and take over a revolution. He said. And, and Nash laughed a lot of this. He said, this does not work. Guerrilla warfare does not work. It did not work in Angola. It, it didn't work in Bolivia and it's not going to work in Venezuela. And what you see there is that don't fight your military, infiltrate them, and then infiltrate your military, take them over from within, use the military to take over the country, and then uh, spark your revolution. So that is the the origin of what I think was a period where the Bolivarian Revolution was born. I'm gonna fast forward a lot for the sake of time, but the last period of migration that I didn't mention is the reverse migration. And this coincidentally starts in 1999, when Hugo Chavez comes to power. But now it's not migration of uh, Middle Easterners coming to Venezuela, but of Venezuelans going back to the Middle East. Uh, And what you see here is you see uh, communities, diasporas being born in the Middle East, particularly in Syria, of Venezuelans to the point that in one part of southwest Syria, Asa which is both a region and a city, uh, it's 65, as of the 2010 census, uh, percent Venezuelan-born Syrian dual citizens. So that my researchers have visited Asawaira, as a put that picture to come from there. It, it, it literally is a place where you speak Spanish and Arabic, you eat arepas and falafel, you dance, you know, multi music, You live like a Venezuelan in the heart of Syria. It's a Jewish-controlled territory, and it's a very strategic area for the Assad government, currently under the Syrian civil war, under protection from Russia and Hezbollah. And this was a, a very in, uh, strategic area, because when, this is just the beginnings of what you need to understand, uh, to get a sense of who Tarek el-Isami is. And before we even talk about what is Hezbollah, because uh, it's not, you can't understand what Hezbollah is doing in Venezuela, what Hezbollah wants in Venezuela or, in, or anything like that, or, or Iran, until you understand this history of the strategic relevance of Tarek al-Assami to that. When you look at Tarek al yeah. know obviously his father reformed, his grandfather, his great-uncle and his grandfather him were mostly revolutionaries and fighting in the fight. But if you see Tarek al-Assami's ascension into the power structure of Venezuela, you begin to see um, a, a kind of a, a rapid rise, particularly since 2004. Um, he becomes the deputy vice, well, he becomes the vice minister, then the minister of interior, uh, then later becomes the governor of an important state uh, in Aragua, in the coast of, the coast of Venezuela. Right. Uh, then he becomes uh, the vice president, uh, and then he becomes the, the, the minister of industries. Now, it, from, a, from a Westphalian perspective, you look at that, you see, like, oh, those are ups and downs. You know, vice president might be the top. But if you follow it from kind of a, a strategic sense of, of what is the, the power structure inside Venezuela, what you begin to see is you begin to see he increasingly controlled first the security apparatus in Venezuela, uh, being as Ministry of Interior, and then became to control the economic apparatus inside Venezuela and to begun to connect it to. Um, there was a documentary in CNN that, that I helped uh, you know, the, the, them, them produce uh, which was called Passports in the Shadows. It was aired uh, both on English and Spanish uh, and by uh, um, Anderson Cooper in English, and Fernando another day, that in in Spanish, which I recommend you all look at. It has a lot of, you know, this, this material, some of it in it. Um, but in that, in, the, in that documentary, in the process of, of doing that documentary, when we started examining Tarek al I realized is that a lot of his ascension had to do with his wife. Uh, his wife, uh, Rudy Amar, uh, Rudi Rudy Amar Alman, man al is very important in this, in the Druze dynasty. matter of fact, the Almans come to the origin of the Jews from the 11th century, of the unification also with the Persians uh, from that period. So what you see is you see the transformation of an individual that was a revolutionary to a prince. Uh, and in the Middle East, those that have uh, blood lineages to fortunes and territory are those that get access to that territory. And I believe uh, a little bit of what I'm describing here is how this is playing itself among a triangle that's established in the Middle East uh, of Turks uh, under Erdogan, uh, uh, Persians and Iranians under uh, the Ayatollahs, and the Druze, under Tariq Al-Aissami, uh, which makes him a very, he's the third leg of that of that table, and that makes him a very relevant player in the Middle East. Um, this, well, not anybody really come out? Right, but I don't say that We
1: You don't need to rush too much, we're doing
0: pretty well, so. Is that right? Well,
1: you want to keep another
0: 15 minutes or something, we're good. Okay, oh yeah, you know, well, we'll see where we get to, and then we'll probably open it up, to get some dialogue with folks. Um, the, uh, this is all distorted a little bit, but essentially, you know, the term that you hear, the country reports on terrorism, the most recent one that was just released, I think about a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, uh, from the Department of State, uh, lists in the country reports on terrorism on this section of Venezuela that there is Hezbollah facilitators and supporters. Now, let me break down those terms. Uh, in the counterterrorism community, you have something that's called the convergence, right? The convergence is organized crime and terrorism. And for a long time in the history of uh, counterterrorism, Many analysts thought that this was never going to happen. They thought that you know criminals and terrorists have completely different objectives, right? Criminals are and motivations. Criminals are motivated by greed, and terrorists, especially the Islamist terrorist variety, are motivated by God. Uh, So they're not going to do the same thing, and they were almost right. Uh, They were actually mostly right. Uh, Terrorists uh, are not just abandoning the jihad and becoming criminals, Uh, and criminals are are not uh, you know just taking up the flag of, of of jihad. But what you're seeing is when the two kind of cohabitate, you're seeing a logistical industry develop where service providers essentially become uh, equally uh, beneficial for criminals as they are for terrorists. If you think about it from just a very basic sense, if you're a lawyer for the FARC, you could be a good lawyer for Hezbollah or or a technician or an accountant or whatnot. So in the counterterrorism community, this is known as the financiers, the fixers, and the facilitators. So that's kind of in the context that we look at when you look at Hezbollah supporters. As I think the Department of Treasury and others are going to start mapping these networks inside uh, Venezuela, you're going to see more of these. They're not card-carrying Nasrallah-approved Hezbollah members, which by the way, Hezbollah doesn't carry cards, so it's hard to know who's what. But they're folks that work within the logistics of Hezbollah, or what the Department of Treasury likes to call as Hezbollah Incorporated. Uh, And so in that, within Venezuela, what we're examining is a sub-state criminal structure which is a civic paramilitary criminal structure that's divided into eight regions, and where Hezbollah plants themselves into those regions. What you tend to find is there's, on the illicit side, on the military side, and on the governmental side, very prominent players of Arab descent that wouldn't categorize, you would not, you would not categorize them as Hezbollah members, or even Hezbollah operators, but you could categorize them as Hezbollah supporters, which is equally as important uh, in this uh, counterterrorism context of the Convergence. One of those operators, or one of those supporters, is a gentleman named Ghazi Nazir al-Din. He's actually the first individual that was ever sanctioned by the U.S. Department of Treasury as a Hezbollah facilitator, and back all the way back in 2008, one of the, one of the first sanctions against uh, Venezuelan officials was ever leveraged. I think Boyle Carvajal was also sanctioned in this same period. Uh, Ghazi Nazir al-Din at the time was the, what we call the ministro consejero, kind of like the deputy chief of mission in the Venezuelan embassy in Syria. He's of Lebanese descent. You see him here in a picture that he tweeted in 2011, when the start of the Syrian civil war, under the caption, Syria resists. You see Nicolas Maduro in the picture, there's Bashar al-Assad, Rafael Ramirez is in the back, there's Ghazi, there's obviously Hugo Chavez. What you tend to find about Ghazi Najar al is how much actually we don't know about him. I've been looking at him for a long time. Um, you, you, when you get to it like this person, you get to his full name. It's Ghazi Atef Salemi Najar Abu Ali. So when you break down that name, right, Ghazi means warrior. Right? from Le- in the Middle East, right? Iraq, Lebanon. Uh, Ateb is the name of his father. Salim is the name of his clan. Nazar, nationalism. Dean it's a city in Mount Lebanon. Abu Ali is the son of Ali. So if you transliterate his name, it's a nom de guerre. It means the warrior from Lebanon. We don't know who Ghazi Nazir Adin is. And as recently what we detected is Nazir Adin's movements in Colombia, Mexico, Dominican Republic, and Costa Rica. So he is what I would describe a Hezbollah, uh, more than a Hezbollah supporter, a Hezbollah facilitator that develops these networks. He develops the networks that move. Uh, move refugees, move routes, move products, move people, but also do propaganda along the way. I mean, he's, he has, a, ironically, a think tank in Venezuela so it's called Global AZ that really doesn't produce any research or, or any analysis, but nonetheless has a Twitter account that tends to be very vocal when it needs to be. But I think one of the things that came out in the CNN documentary that's tied to Ghazi and Turek was the idea of documentation was establishing the way it was uh, told? The story was told in the CNN documentary, which I think is correct, but again, maybe a little bit incomplete. Again, it was just a, a, you know, a short documentary for uh, television purposes. But it, it described it as a scheme between potentially between uh, the Venezuelan government and uh, the governments in the Middle East to provide uh, documentation, namely passports, but other documentation to suspected members of terrorist organizations, namely Hezbollah. Uh, when you look at those documentation and when you get into the heart of it. Uh, this is just a sample. Uh, what you tend to find is the surnames. You know, it, it, beyond being just the documentation, you know, to give like you know someone, an operator from Hezbollah, a passport. Um, Hezbollah didn't need that. You know, Hezbollah had tremendous for the army attack way back in the '90s. They had abilities to get documents from other governments in the world. As a matter of fact, they used uh, Greece at one point to get documents. They had you know ways to embed to, into the corrupt networks and get government documents to uh, provide cover and concealment to their movement. What Venezuela provided was the ability to create identities, which is much different. For those that work in the intelligence community or are familiar with it, it's the uh, cover platform to be able to create the legend. Uh, and when you look at the names, of somebody, this may be a little small, so you got the Husseini's, the Nazardinis, the latraches These are prominent names in Lebanon and Syria of families that have established fortunes in the Middle East. So this is beyond, just, this is not just about Hezbollah, this is beyond... Uh, the establishment movement of terrorists or criminals this is actually establishing a total diaspora that's connected through money and movement. Uh, and, and if we, we've documented over one hundred seventy three of these cases specifically, some go with the full suite of records from birth certificate to bank account, uh, and some of them just have a limited amount of documentation. but mapping the family network is, is what's important. And that'll leave me with Iran because I think and this I'll start to end with this so we can get into some Q and A. But uh, when it comes to Iran, you know, if it, with all the context of what I said, if you if took anything away from the last 20-30 minutes of what I've been talking about, Syria is Syria's very relevant for Venezuela. In fact, if you want to understand Venezuela, study Syria. They were designed the same way. If you were to describe Syria in one sentence, it is a humanitarian crisis with the largest refugee outflows in the world, with increasingly occupation of Iran, Russia, Hezbollah, and now Turkey, but that definition is feeding, also fitting Venezuela. And the reason why uh, the Iranians will fight, literally to the death, to protect Syria is because it's a logistical hub. It's the bridge, as they call, between Lebanon and Iran, the land bridge that's increasingly being populated. Um, the, the concept of what we understood for Syria was that what we thought, you know, is, you know kind of an analogous to the Venezuela concept, we thought it was a terrorist state with Iranian occupation. We didn't factor in all the geopolitical other elements. And we thought a weaker Assad would be an easier Assad to be removed. And what happened eight years later of civil war, war and conflict in Syria, we found that a weaker Assad, not necessarily Assad easier to be removed, but a weaker Assad is an Assad easily controlled by external state actors. That's a lesson that we need to learn when it comes to Venezuela. So when it, if, if Syria is the land bridge for Iran in the Middle East, then Venezuela has converted itself into the air bridge. Uh, one of the things that's most known to the public is something that's called, that, that you know, it was dubbed in the media as Aero Terror, with a weekly flight that would go from Iran to Venezuela. It was a code share between Iran Air and Combiasa, the national state airlines. And it would fly uh, about once a week, with literally no passengers. Uh, people that would try to buy tickets, they would inflate the tickets to you know, prices in size about t- $10,000, $20,000, a price that no one really paid to go to. Iran, and then when the most interesting aspect of that was when you go to the balance sheet, you kind of, you find out that they lost more than thirty million dollars in three years, so it wasn't commercially viable. But most importantly, it was subsidized not by the Ministry of Transportation, which, which, you would suspect, to subsidize a national state airline, but by the Ministry of Mining, which gives you a hint as to what they're going after. Um, I'll this, and then uh, lastly, I mean, I think uh, to 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 make uh, kind of my concluding point is I th- there's a lot of lessons that we could draw from the Middle East particularly when it comes to Iran, Hezbollah, and Syria, but we have to first understand the origins. We have to understand how this was developed both in the Middle East, how this came to Venezuela, and then we have to establish the, 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 the analytical lens to be able to, to learn from the lessons in the Middle East and not apply them in Latin America. Um, this is about networks. Uh, these networks are transregional now. They move uh, all around the world, uh, not just for criminal purposes, but for strategic purposes. There's intelligence uh, state support that's been provided to these networks that allows for them to establish what you see in the Middle East as you know basically Hezbollah Incorporated all throughout Iraq and Syria um, and increasingly starting to see that in Latin America, particularly in Venezuela. So with that, I'll shut up and then I will let you guys ask me some questions because otherwise i will just keep talking. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. okay. Uh, just raise your hand, identify yourself, and uh,
1: Joseph, you can just... All right. Don't be shy. You go, go. Uh, hi, how you doing? Uh, my name is Alberto Espinoza. Uh, my question is uh, regarding Nicaragua and the Otero dictatorship. Where does where, where does he fit into all this? Is, is there any um, Hezbollah
0: influence in Nicaragua at this time? Uh, does he have any close connection? Sure. To so I, I am not as familiar with Nicaragua. It's one of the, so it's, you know with the Bolivarian Alliance, one of the countries that I didn't look at as closely as I should have has been Nicaragua. I've talked a little bit more on Bolivia, I've talked a little bit more about that, it's been a little bit in the news right now. But I have a lot of colleagues that have looked at Nicaragua. And one of the things when I when I was at the uh, uh, Special Operations Command, when we were talking about this, you know, yes, some folks that looked at Nicaragua very closely. One of the things they first grabbed from this was they you know they're looking oh, you know what. They started to crystallize certain concepts that or certain things that they've seen throughout history. And one of the things they brought up to me, they said, was uh, about Gaddafi. Uh, they said, you know, you know we always kind of knew, they, they, the Cuban uh, influence was always well-known and obviously the Sandinistas and the historical part. We said, But no something that not a lot of people really talked about was Gaddafi's influence on Ortega. Gaddafi had a tremendous amount of influence on Ortega, to the point that they say that Gaddafi's son, I think, he either lived or, lived or once lived in, in Nicaragua, right? Uh, and then they said, Joseph, what does Qaddafi fit in all this? And I said, well, you know, if you look at what Qaddafi was when it came to the Arab nationalists, he was a supporter. You know, he, him and him and Nasr literally established a non-aligned movement. So uh, I think in that context, uh, you know, I haven't looked at this uh, uh, construct in Nicaragua, but to be honest with you, I didn't look at this construct in Venezuela for a long time. You know, they, in intelligence, they have a saying, they say, there's no such thing as bad intelligence, there's only bad questions. If you don't ask the right questions, you do not get the right answers. And, and I don't engage in intelligence, but in my research, in our, my center's research, uh, we weren't asking the right questions. You know, We, we mapped Tarek al network back in 2013. We established the financial hubs that he was using out of Jordan in the Middle East, out of Curacao, and out of uh, Panama in, in Latin America. We knew down to the banks and down to the movements of how they, that, that, that illicit enterprise was was working. Nonetheless, did that any of that really matter? Because it wasn't until 2016. That we hit a wall. Like, you know, at some point when you're doing when you're doing network analysis, it's just you know for anyone that's ever done that, it's it's frustrating because it's like whack-a-mole. You like you, oh that one, and another one grows, that one and another one grows. So you just kind of you know you lose your mind after a while, and especially these networks which are multi-dimensional. They're huge, so we start realizing like, what's the purpose of mapping this huge network? How are we gonna? We can't even go after. It. How do you go after something like that? You can't sanction everything, you know. So I started thinking, you know what? Let's go back to the drawing board. A Where did his family come from? How did they get to Venezuela? Simple questions, right? But until you ask those questions, and I honestly believe nobody really asked those questions in Venezuela. Nobody asked the right questions in Venezuela, and therefore we got a lot of wrong answers. And I recommend those questions be asked in every country, in every case, in Latin America, particularly among the Bolivarian Alliance, and Nicaragua would be no different. Sir? Um, I'm Rizwan
1: from Pakistan, and uh, I'm a great student, he's great a student uh, in the University of Massachusetts, and uh, my PhD uh, is on Middle East. Uh, I'm actually looking at uh, this sectarian inside Islam, sectarian factor like right? Shia and Sunni, and uh, Iran and Syria. Uh, one common point between Iran and Syria, or Iran, you know, chasing after Syria, is uh, not not too much petrol or strategic, but sectarian. You know, Iran wants to be a champion of uh, Shia
0: Muslim yeah. in the Middle East. So, where does this sectarian factor in Middle East uh, fit in your? So that, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. That's a great, and this has been a lot of the conversation that we've had. is a more nuanced conversation we have with some of the analysts that know this stuff. And obviously, there's there's differences with Syria too. I mean, there's not the level of sectarian uh, um, um, of divisions within society that there are in Venezuela. There is druze in both, but there's not you know a, a large percentage of Alawites or Yazidis or, 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 or uh, Kurds or anything like that. So. Um, <coughs> But it, going down to like, to this side of the world, the Iranians, the way the sectarian divisions in, in Latin America are different, right? They're not Islamic, uh, and, and they're not, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're all indigenous communities. Uh, like if you look at Bolivia, for example, there's uh, more than 15 indigenous communities in Bolivia. Uh, the most notable are like the Aymaras, the Quechuas, the Chiquitanis. And so there's a bunch of these indigenous communities that most people have neglected. And, and they're part of you know, displaced and disgruntled populations all throughout the region that uh, led to some of the, the power structures, if you think about the Bolivarian Alliance, Korea uh, and Ecuador, Morales in Bolivia, even, he wasn't really Bolivarian, but he was suspected to be some of, of Mala in Peru. And what you see with Iran is they understand, they use that understanding that they have in the Middle East of indigenous communities, of uh, sectarian conflict, and they understand and they bring that knowledge to Latin America. One way to describe the Iranian Revolution, if you take take the Islamic part out of it for a second, is as a social movement to defend natural resources. That's the way they sell themselves in Latin America. They don't come in, you know, hey, look at the, the you know, the 12th Imam and Mahmoud Magdi and we want to... The they, they come in first talking the language that they think the Latin Americans already understand, and then they gradually move into, into some sense. I mean, at, at the at the graduate level, uh, in the country like Peru, for example, they take those concepts of, of, of social movements and, and, and uh, sectarian divisions and then they apply the Islamic element later. Uh, they have actually a culture center in Peru called Inkar Islam. It's like the Incas in Islam, so it's very, kind of, very, very not, not very discreet in the way they dis- described it. But uh, I think that's important to understand, and, and I think Iran's very nuanced on this. They're very good at this. And increasingly, the understanding of the, the way they present themselves has to be in a way that's compatible with Latin American faiths as well. So in Latin America, you have pretty much you know, Christians and Catholics, right, right. for the most part. Um, and they understand that that's not, you know, mass conversions to Islam it, you know, it may be a long-term goal, but it's not something that's going to happen overnight. So uh, what you're seeing, for example, in a week, you're seeing, um, I think at the end of this week, you're seeing uh, uh, the head of, uh, it's kind of like a religious state summit or something like that in, in, in Baku, in Azerbaijan. Right, where um, the head of um, uh, one of the top advisors to, 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 to Khamenei in, uh, in Iran, uh, Ali Akbar Balehti, the former foreign minister, will be traveling to that. The Argentines have recently asked for uh, uh, an extradition of Ali Akbar Balehti because he's wanted or he's, you know, he's part of the Ami attack in 94. But what you see when he goes to this summit in Azerbaijan, one of the reasons that it's a very important summit. It's, just, it's the, the, the design of that summit is to present an ecumenical approach to religion, right? To basically describe all religions as one religion. And the Iranians have adapted that approach in Latin America. They don't, they've adapted the ecumenical approach to all religions. And that's why a lot of, if you look at the, you know, kind of into the granular of a lot of the converse, the people that they're recruiting,
1: a lot of them are Catholic,
0: you know, and, and you have to ask yourself why. Uh, one, and, one and two. One and two. Questions. Sure. What is the most influential figure in the Jews from your uh, perspective in the East right now? Oh, a, I'm not a Jew scholar, but I mean, i the most controversial figure is Jumblat, <laughs> you know, so. Uh, no, no, I, w- I wouldn't be able to answer that, no. No, Jumblat would be the most controversial. I'd say, w- w- no, 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 the, the influential, like, has, like yeah. With Hezbollah? With the Jews, like he's, yeah, he's with everybody, I have a different like, opinion about him. But the same okay, thing. well, I mean, what what we looked at was essentially the look at the divisions within the Jews of those that work with Hezbollah and those that worked against Hezbollah, right? Mostly in Lebanon, you know. Uh, so Jamblats are openly against Hezbollah, but then also uh, have been you know pretty much lambasted in all kinds of cases of corruption and other uh, and other things. And so what we what we basically taken a position is—I I couldn't describe like the hierarchy of the Druze inside Lebanon or, or Syria for that matter. But what we're looking is to look at where Tarek El Asami fits in, because what, one of my first experiences were that you know when, when you mentioned uh, El Asami or you mentioned this the, the, the family, is there's not a lot of recognition of him. Like they said, oh, oh we didn't know he was there. You know. However, when when you get to the Druze in Syria, he's very very recognizable. Uh, matter of fact, in, in Asawada, I think they had a oh, I was a street or something named after him. Uh, and so he's a very prominent figure in there. I don't know if that comes from his family, his father, his grandfather before him, but uh, what was curious to me, no, you know probably more about the Jews in the sense of the, those families are insular, right? So the Lebanese Jews are connected to the Syrian Jews, so it, it didn't make sense to me that we would know one and not know the other. So that's what we were looking at more. But I have one of my analysts that, know, that studied a lot more research into this that could describe that a little bit better. My second question, yeah.
1: what well, is asked like the United States government, region from your perspective, for Venezuela? What's our plan
0: for like, for Venezuela? We're saying about like very broad things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what is like from your perspective? What is our vision? I can tell you what our what we I can't speak for the U.S. government. Right? So I don't know what the plan is for Venezuela. From, um, your, from your perspective, what what I think the plan should be for Venezuela? Yeah, okay. okay, so um, actually, I have I think I have a slide up here. Yeah, this is a little bit longer. Yeah, there you go. That was not on cue. I promise. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the plan. Uh, or I not plan, the strategy right? that the US government uses, it's, it's, it's called maximum pressure. Right? Uh, very, you guys are very familiar with the because it's the same kind of strategy on Iran. right? It's to delegitimize them to the point where you have, an isolation, to really have no legitimacy in the international community uh, using political pressure, and to uh, choke them financially through sanctions and other uh, economic uh, measures to the point that you get a, a point of fracture, like maybe that center point right there. right? But that, that maximum pressure of campaign is a it's built on a premise. It's built on a premise that you have a regime that all they care about is power. So if you have a regime that all they care about is power, power, then a maximum pressure campaign could work. And I was recently reminded that most maximum pressure campaigns, on average, are about one to one point five years. And the one in uh, um, Venezuela has only been going on for nine to ten months. So it's you know it's, it's still a little bit premature to say if that's worked or not worked. Nonetheless, I know that there's a little frustration that the maximum pressure hasn't given the results one would think it has. And had a similar conversation in Iran. And what I added to that is I think there's a different, if, if, you know, if that's not working, then we have to go back to the premise. We have to go back to the assumptions. Are they correct? Is this just a regime that wants power? That's a critical question. Because if you look at it from a revolutionary perspective, there's a concept called anti-fragile, right? Which is the more you pressure something, the stronger it becomes. If you think of it from just like your muscles, the more you work them out, the tougher you become, that there's an anti-fragile component within the Venezuelan construct, the way it's designed, that is, the power is a part of it, but the real part of it is the expansion. So the Bolivarian Revolution was designed to expand itself, as revolutions are. There's a difference between revolutions and regimes. You know, regimes can remain, but revolutions have to advance or they die. And the Bolivarian Revolution, at this point, is meant on expansion. It's what you're seeing all throughout Latin America. They're, it's a very well orchestrated plan that they're executing. And I'm not saying they're going to be successful. Uh, but they're at least going to try. So I think, in my opinion, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see uh, a counter-revolutionary strategy, a counter-insurgency strategy that's much more broader, regional, global, than just a maximum pressure campaign against one regime. I don't care about regimes. I care about uh, stability in the revolution, or stopping the revolution. I'm sorry, I, this is gentlemen.
1: Uh Yes, I think there are several economic and political organizations, international organizations in Latin America. I think Mercosur might be one of them, but there are several of them where the United States is not a member. The U.S. is an OAS, but a lot of those other U.S. is not a member. They're, they're often shared by Venezuela or Cuba. And I'm wondering how much the Middle East, either Hezbollah or any
0: Middle East ruler, uh, has influence in Latin America through this organization. So there's only one major organization that Iran and Hezbollah has some little influence over. It's called the Bolivarian Alliance of the Americas. So you've heard me use that term, the Bolivarians and things like that. It's kind of become... Uh, kind of ingrained in my in uh, you know, a lexicon uh, because um, that alliance it, it exists it's been there for a while it started in 2005 it, it began with Venezuela and Cuba it grew uh, to then become Nicaragua Bolivia Ecuador at the time now left and then some Caribbean satellites <coughs> when uh, that alliance began Iran and Syria were observing members since day one so they attached themselves to that alliance and as that alliance that, the ALBA. Alliance, I have a different presentation with different where It shows the ALBA. Uh, it shows all these uh, multilateral alliances in Latin America kind of overlap with one another. And there's only two. There's only one alliance that the ALBA has no access to, or has uh, up until a point. Now it's different. Now the political winds have shifted. That the ALBA alliance didn't have at least one member in. You know, it has it in Mercosur and UNASUR, and obviously the OAS and you know CELAC and all these other uh, uh, groups. Uh, but was the Pacific Alliance. The Pacific Alliance was designed specifically to not have any Alba influence in it, and by extension had less influence of Iran or any of the other external state actors. Uh, that's changed a little bit because the, the founding members of the Pacific Alliance were Mexico, uh, Chile, uh, um, Peru, and I'm probably forgetting somebody, uh, Colombia. Um, uh, however, Mexico has gone a very different direction now. We're you know, struggling a lot with Mexico. For those who are from Bolivia, are probably struggling a little more with Mexico in the recent days. Uh, and so, you know, those and the Pacific Alliance isn't the same, isn't as strong as a construct as it once was when it was envisioned. So, uh, Iran has played themselves to that alliance. And I don't know about much of the other alliance. Mercosur uh, is a South American uh, uh, um, political economic framework. Uh, there's obviously some members, but what Iran does is they play the political chess, right? So, they like, I'll give you an example in Argentina, right? So, uh, for 12 years, Argentina was under uh, the rule of the Kirshner's, uh, the first Nestor Kirshner, then Christina Kirshner. Iran gradually grew its presence through that twelve-year period, um, and obviously, it already had a presence in Argentina. We know about the bombings in the nineties. Um, President Mauricio Macri comes to power uh, in two thousand fifteen, and um, you know they understood that that's a challenge. So Iran didn't leave, or, or Hezbollah didn't, you know, completely retract uh, from 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 Argentina. But they they understood they couldn't advance as much as they wanted to. Uh, now uh, things have switched and uh, Alberto Fernandez and. Is now the president-elect of Argentina, and his vice president is Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. And there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, a concern that Iran and Hezbollah are going to entrench themselves again into Argentina um, once again. So they they kind of play this political they, they play that political chess. They they kind of wait to see which ones. They don't always try to determine the outcomes. Uh, but Iran's been in for a long time in Venezuela, for instance. Um, you know, a lot of people think that they started with Hugo Chavez. You know, some of the Iranian uh, recruits, in major recruits that were involved in major terrorist operations in the 90s, uh, were recruited out the Iranian embassy in Venezuela, including Abdel Kader, next door from Guyana. I'm sorry, sorry. Um, so, um, I a uh, researcher at San Security Policy um, on the Iran deal, Iran deal. So, um, there was a project at Sandra, I don't know if you know about that. I mean,
1: um, but, you know, think that it would have aided Iran's, um, uh, part of Iran's uh, objective in the
0: region, What's your In terms of the nuclear deal? Uh, in terms of the nuclear deal, how uh, it gave Iran more power. Than oh, in Latin America? So let me just rephrase, just to make sure I understood the question correctly. Uh, was the question, uh, did the Iran nuclear deal give Iran more impetus in Latin America? E- yes. Okay, and, and then you mentioned Cassandra, was that because you think Cassandra was one of the, that's one of the reasons they wanted to stop, or like the Obama well, administration wanted to stop have, it uh, political right not, I, I'm the I'm from Obama, yeah. And they, they, they sort of said that, you know, that was part of the reason. And in that investigation, was part of uh, uh, the process of getting around okay. the agree to a deal. Yeah, okay, I think you get it. Okay, so just uh, in the context of the nuclear deal, I think that's what we'll look at this. So was very interesting actually, uh, because that's actually a lot of the period where I looked at Iran and Latin America, talking a little more broadly. Uh, I began looking at that in 2010, and so obviously this is before the pre-nuclear deal, but you know intensified in 2013, which that's when the nuclear deal really uh, kind of kicked off, Uh, and obviously in 2015 when it was signed, uh, the JCPOA. And what was interesting in, in that is, you know, a lot, a lot of calculations early on. When I used to have these early conversations with the military and intelligence community about this, they were like a really small conversations with only a few people. This, obviously, the this rooms gotten a lot bigger over the, over the years, uh, but nonetheless, there's a lot of skepticism as to uh, Iran's presence in Latin America. And at the point, you know, for the for the president that was saw a lot, a lot of the calculation was, um, well, now that you know there's this sanctions on uh, Iran because of the nuclear program, that uh, that's going to retract them from Latin America because of economic tightening. You know, this is an expensive thing for if you think about it, for Iran, right? To operate on the other side of the world, and you know, that can't be uh, very easy financially to do. But what you actually saw was the more we tightened on Iran in the Middle East, or, or, or in Iran in the financial, the more they operated in Latin America. Like, they actually increased their operations. Uh, because I think for two reasons. One, because they depended more on Latin America for financial access to uh, US dollars, uh, and, and two, because they needed Latin America to break the isolation, the international isolation. So they, they built, at the time that the sanctions were pressuring, you know, the multi-lateral sanctions regime in Iran gradually grew from about 2008 to 2013, that was the high watermark for the Bolivarian revolution. That was like literally where the Bolivarians really started to become very strong uh, on, on a regional sense. Um, Hugo uh, Chavez from Venezuela, the was in Cuba and all that. Um, and so I, I think in that sense, um, uh, it kind of was a miscalculation uh, on, on that. Now, uh, how that played into Iraq, uh, Cassandra and the decline of the nuclear deal. So, for those who aren't familiar with uh, Project Cassandra, Project Cassandra was part of a larger operation in the DEA uh, that was actually an interagency operation uh, to l- look after Hezbollah's illicit financial networks. Um, what uh, they did, is described to me but one, uh, by the head of the DEA Special Operations, that was it, it was literally like a monster. Like, like You just find one and it just kind of kept growing as you start to unravel it. It became very well known to the public in 2011 by a case that was uh, in the Department of Justice, uh, uh, FBI ran, which was called the uh, Diamond Juma case, Operation Titan, which was a, a Colombian Lebanese uh, drug trafficker, money launderer, who was trafficking multi-ton shipments of cocaine uh, and multi-million dollars of uh, money moving from uh, Los Etas cartel in Mexico uh, uh, on behalf of Hezbollah. Uh, and what the scheme was, was essentially, it was you would basically, you, you move the drugs, but you would launder the money by uh, buying used cars in Africa and selling them in the United States and m- oh, moving the financial transactions through the Lebanese Canadian bank uh, that got sanctioned and shut down. Um, and so what you started to see on the U.S. side, you start to see all these used car dealerships uh, start to get developed, which you know, didn't really make much profitable sense, but nonetheless they were a- active. And you saw empty car lots in, uh, in, in Africa uh, where, where you know, they were selling cars, but there were actually no cars there. So what it became was a major money laundering mechanism uh, for, Hezbo- for Hezbollah, and that kind of just ended up growing, and the accusation, I don't say the accusation, but the, the insinuation that the political piece uh, put out was that the Obama administration clamped down on this because they thought that the more you this monster grew and the more that the DEA and, and the other agencies, Department of Defense particularly, uh, understood this, the more they would figure out this was tied to Iran. So uh, in, in Latin America, uh, in, in the analytical community of the United States, when it came to Latin America and it came to Iran and Hezbollah, it would constantly be divided into uh, um, Iran activity and, and, and IRGC activity. And Hezbollah activity, not the same, right? Hezbollah into the the money. They want they want they want the drugs. They want the money. They you know they, just, they want they want to get rich. Iran and Hezbollah, they're doing some intelligence stuff, just you know typical stuff. We don't really know what they do, but they would compartmentalize the two. Like, which didn't make any sense to me because everywhere else in the world, literally look at it like they're together. But for whatever reason in Latin America, they had to be separate. And I think that that uh, started to become uh, debunked over time. Now I don't know if that was anything strategic by the Obama administration or anything like that. Um, I actually think it's more has more to do with bureaucratic issues, uh, infighting between uh, equities among agencies. And for those that aren't as familiar with it, I'm not as familiar with it myself. I don't work in the government, but um, you know, there's different ways of collection in terms of intelligence. The DEA is the newest member of the intelligence community. They have a different uh, collection platform than, than you know, other intelligence agencies, and, and they're also newer to the whole community. And I think there's a lot of concern about the way that they were operating and things like that. And there's you know, this happens in government, right? You have, Turf wars, turf battles, as they say. So I think there was a lot of that, actually, that went on. Uh, I'm not familiar, no, but but I, what I can say, what I can say though, is that um, not a lot of resources were applied to the problem set. And uh, for the little resources that were applied, there were some very smart people that understood very important things about Iran and Hezbollah's presence in uh, Venezuela in Latin America that um, weren't allowed to advance as much as they should. Else. That's it? Okay. Well thank you guys. Thank Paul. Thank you again for your thank time. You Kelly. Absolutely. Thank you.